We're continuing in Jesus' prayer, found in John 17 this week. Um, His whole prayer splits into three different parts, based on who he's praying for. Last week he was praying for himself, for his own glory. This This week it's for his disciples, and next week it's for all believers. So let's read together John 17, verses 6 to 19, which should be in your orders of service. I have manifested the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for the All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Amen. Well, it's almost half past three on a Sunday afternoon, so naturally I'm about to ask you three existential questions at what is peak nap time. These are for quiet and honest reflection within your own hearts, so please ponder them deeply and don't answer out loud. Question number one. Would you rather every top you ever wore be kind of itchy or only be able to use one-ply toilet paper for the rest of your life? Question number two. Would you rather be compelled to high-five everyone you meet for the rest of your life, or have to kiss everyone you meet on both cheeks? Question number three. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses, or one horse-sized duck? If you're wondering, my answers are itchy top, high-fives, and horse-sized duck. Now let me ask one more question. Would you rather be hated by the world around you or loved by the world around you? That question is at the heart of our passage this week. Are you ready to remain faithful to Christ in a world which hates him and everyone who stands with him? Jesus in this prayer is fast approaching the cross. He knows that in less than 24 hours, his time will finally have come. His life of perfect obedience to his Father's will is coming to its end point. 
And he's preparing his disciples for that happening. And he knows that he's sending the disciples into a world which hates them. He's sending them on mission to a world which doesn't want to hear their message, which doesn't want to hear about Jesus, and wants to hate everyone connected with him. Tough gig. So let's get into these verses we've just read together. And we're going to be doing a classic who, what, why. Who is Jesus praying for? What is he praying for them? And why does he pray it? So firstly, who is Jesus praying for? And we're going to go through this one quick fire. In verses 6 to 10, Jesus makes clear that he's praying for his disciples, the apostles who are his concern in this whole section we're in today. So let's see what Jesus highlights about them. He shares three aspects of the disciples in these few verses. That they, are, that they have received the word in faith, that they belong to him, and because of that, they do not belong to the world. Look at verse 8 with me. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The disciples have received the words that Jesus spoke to them from the Father. So they've heard what Jesus said, they've believed in him, and therefore received him in faith. They were in transformative, life-giving relationship with him. And it's the same pattern that we follow today. We hear the words of the gospel preached, we respond in faith, and receive eternal life in the person of Jesus. And next we see the disciples belong to Jesus, verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is very clear that he's praying not for the world in general, but specifically for these disciples. Since verse 12, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That is Judas Iscariot, who is betraying him. And they are not lost because they are given to Jesus by the Father. If you know God and have received eternal life in Christ's name, then you belong to him. You are united to him. You have a heavenly status as someone whose home is not earth, but is heaven. That's how Paul in his letter to the Philippians describes it. You are citizens of heaven. That is where you belong as one who belongs to Jesus, while you're temporarily living in this broken world. And because of that, because you belong to Jesus, you do not belong to the world. The disciples were, verse 6, given to Jesus out of the world. Previously, before they started following him, they very much belonged to the world. But since being brought into relationship with him, their home isn't this world we're living in right now. They belong to Jesus and his forever kingdom. Jesus is, as he repeatedly did in his own ministry, making a very sharp distinction between the two. And we might not like using such sharp distinctions today, do we? It might make us uncomfortable to label people as this or that. But the Bible's consistent message is that there are only two kinds of people. Those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. It uses a lot of different language to describe that. The good and the evil, the righteous and the wicked, the children of God and the children of the devil. But Jesus isn't afraid to make sharp distinctions between those who belong to him and those who reject him. And that might make our modern woke sensibilities uncomfortable, but being clear about that helps set up the rest of what Jesus says. There isn't a spectrum of good and evil here. There is a sharp, 
black and white distinction between you as a believer and that lovely neighbor you have who puts you to shame with their kindness and thoughtfulness. If they haven't received Jesus, then they are part of this world, this passing world. They're part of the wicked. They don't belong to Jesus. And we need to be clear about that. So, so as Jesus describes the apostles, we see that they are believers who belong to Jesus, and therefore they don't belong to the world. But it's necessary to say that despite the focus of Jesus' prayer being the apostles who are sitting with him at this time, we can still apply much of this to ourselves today. I don't know if you woke up feeling particularly apostolic today, whether you woke up um, at 6 a.m. with a sudden urge to write a letter to your brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. I know I didn't because, well, I'm not an apostle. Not last time I checked. But we do have enough in common with them to be able to identify with them in their situation. We too are living in a world in which Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We're also those who have heard the word and received Christ in faith. And we belong to him, we're kept by him, and do not belong to the world. So there are many points at which we can make appropriate applications to ourselves today. And with that in mind, we can ask the next question we're posing of Christ's prayer. Secondly, why? Why is Jesus praying for these disciples? Um, in our office at church, one of the guys was gifted a calendar at Christmas, and it's one of those ones that just has the one page for each day, and then you tear it off and chuck that day's page in the bin when the day's over. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, on each day, there's a quote that's meant to you know, motivate you to work well that day. You know, if you can dream it, you can do it. And failure is only the first step on the path to success. It's utter guff, but you know the kind of thing. Well, how would you feel if this morning you checked your calendar, tore off yesterday's page, chucked it in the bin, and looked at today's date, and at the top of the page, in beautifully scripted calligraphy, it read, Sunday, the 11th of July, 2021. Everyone hates you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because you belong to him, you don't belong to the world, and the whole world will hate you for it. It will hate you. Let's look through these verses to see how Jesus shows this in his prayer. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He doesn't miss the mark here. The world has hated the disciples because they belong to Jesus. And it's because of the word that they have that they are hated. Since the disciples hold out God's word, God's word to the world, they are hated, just like Jesus. And Jesus wants the disciples to be there doing just that. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Jesus isn't taking them away from the fight, but he's preparing them for it. He's preparing them for a life of struggling in a world that hates them. Isn't there something in you that just thinks the world should really love hearing the gospel? That it should be grateful that news of great joy to them? When I'm thinking about it in my own head, and my own heart, I see a beautiful message of free salvation to anyone who believes. I see a life full of joy and one which helps you to live as a human you've been designed to be, to fulfill your calling as a person made in the image of God. 
I see incredible dignity to each and every human life and guarantees of the kind of everlasting security and blessing that money can't buy. Internally, I really do think that the world should be grateful that we're holding out the gospel to them. They should welcome us with outstretched arms, delighted to hear the good news that we preach. And it should. People should respond to the saving news of the gospel with real joy. But if I keep expecting that, and if you keep expecting that too, then well, we're living in a fantasy land, aren't we? Our eyes and our hearts may, by God's grace, have been open to the light of the gospel. We might have seen God's glory in that, but the world still hasn't. It still lives in the darkness, and it loves the darkness. It sees Christianity as more of a threat than anything else, and it wants to shut out any signs of the light that it can. Think of the narrative that our world spins of Christianity today. When it comes to the church, well, it's the epitome of the patriarchy. It's the thing that holds people back from reaching their potential, represses them from expressing their individuality, which is sacred in such an individualist world. And the church has been a cover for abuse, wars, extorting the poor, and holding back any positive change. It's the status quo. That's the kind of narrative the media portrays anyway. And the only time the church tends to be spoken of in a positive light is when it compromises the gospel, when it starts to look a lot less like the church and more like the world, when they're having second baptisms for people transitioning to the opposite sex, affirming their lifestyle, when they have same-sex weddings or LGBT ministers, or when they put the health and safety message of COVID at the heart of everything they do. That's what our world thinks. It might not express it exactly like that, but our world is deeply anti-God to its core. It's threatened by the invasive power of God and his gospel, so wishes to either put a stop to it to make it evil, or dilute the message into something so weak that you can barely taste it. This is the reality for all of us. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we share the gospel sometimes, or when we share Christian morals with our unbelieving friends, that we are hated and rejected for it. Not just brushed aside, not just ignored, not just sidelined, but hated. You won't have been able to miss it, but last month was Pride Month in the UK, the annual month-long celebration of all things LGBT with rainbow flags in every shop, every train station, bus stop, big company email, TV, social media. Absolutely everyone wants to be seen to be supporting Pride. And that month brings with it an overwhelming amount of pressure to conform to its ethos and values, that love, and specifically sexual love, is not to be viewed of as we've traditionally understood it, but that we are to be free, to free ourselves from the shackles of historical repression and live our best lives now by being true to ourselves and expressing that in an ever-widening spectrum of sexuality. Essentially, it's the denial of the fundamental truth that humanity as a whole has been made in the image of God and that to thrive as humans, we should live up to that design. It is deeply anti-God to its core. And one of the younger lads in our church was in a school lesson a few weeks ago, and he was told to draw a rainbow flag in celebration of the Pride movement. But, bravely, 
He refused. He said that he wouldn't draw this because he was a Christian, and he didn't believe that the Pride movement was right. He even got a chance to actually explain why he believed what God has revealed about man and woman in his classroom. He's only 15, with excellent Christian backbone, which many of us adults may lack. And he may have lost a few friends in this. Some of his classmates might hate him, and his whole year group at school might have unfairly and untruthfully branded him as a homophobe. But his witness wasn't wrong. His gospel witness was spot on, and he remained faithful to Christ under immense pressure from his peers. Whether it's conversations with our neighbour or a family member who identifies as lesbian, gay or trans, or maybe your company wants you to put a footer on your email celebrating pride. There are so many different ways in which we may feel the pressure to conform to our world. And there are plenty of other ways in which we can feel pressure to conform in the other 11 months of the year. Because it's not the only sin of the world we live in. We can feel pressure to conform to a culture of gossip in our group of friends. Or to get on board with militant climate change theory. To think we're saving the world. To partake in rampant careerism at work. Or to be part of a culture of blatant materialism. In all of these areas, we are going to be tempted to compromise the gospel because we are worried about our witness. We'll think something like, I'm going to be really loving and affirming to this person so that I'm viewed well in the officer of the neighborhood. And then I can have a really good platform to share the gospel from that. It would harm the gospel witness if I spoke about the truth of the Bible here. People might misunderstand it, take it the wrong way. They might think I'm judgmental. So I'm just going to leave that issue. It's not central to the gospel anyway, so it's totally okay for me to sidestep it. But let me ask you, why are you doing that? Is it because you earnestly care for your friend's salvation? Or do you just want them to like you? I wish it weren't the case, but I think more often than not, we just want to be liked. So we'll be morally fuzzy on the big issues of the time. But if you've already compromised yourself and your values, your gospel witness is harmed. The gospel speaks into these current issues. There are such hot topics of the day, and when it does, we might be hated for it. But you've not done anything wrong if you faithfully take a stand for Jesus It hasn't harmed your gospel witness because you've stood for Christ and his word in a world which hates him. Later on, when these disciples faced imprisonment, aggression, abuse, public mocking and shame, and even death, Jesus' words to them would have given them such comfort and assurance that he hadn't abandoned them and they hadn't failed. He knew this was going to happen. He knew they were going to face opposition and be vilified for what they preached. That's why Jesus prays for the disciples. He knows they are heading straight into the lion's den and wants them to be prepared for what's coming. So how will Jesus reassure them that in a world in which they are hated, that they are going to be able to keep on going 
and keep on being faithful in the midst of real hostility? How is he going to help them endure? That's what we see in our final point where we ask, what? What does Jesus pray for them? And here we see Jesus pray for his disciples that they would remember who they belong to and take great courage from that. So we see two great truths, both flowing from the fact that as Christians, we belong to Jesus. So firstly, because you belong to Jesus, you are eternally secure. If you scan over our passage, you'll see just how key a theme this is. Verse 6, the people you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Through this passage, Jesus is hammering away at this point. You have been given, past tense, given, with certainty to him from the Father. If you believe in Jesus, you have been given to him, and he will keep and guard you. The Lord Jesus, the one who we saw last week, has authority over everything, over all flesh, who can grant eternal life to those who belong to him. He's the one we belong to. So whatever happens in this world, well, we shouldn't be afraid of the long game. We know that our futures are eternally secure because we can trust Jesus as our saviour, as the one who will jealously protect what is rightfully is, his bride, his church. In addition to this, knowing that God the Father has already given to Jesus those who belong to him, we can step out and evangelize in a hostile world with boldness and God isn't sat in heaven with no clue about how that person's going to respond. God knows exactly who he's given to Christ eternally and who he hasn't. And that gives us real hope that as we are sent into the world, as Jesus says in verse 18, that there are people out there who in eternity past have been given to Jesus by the Father, and they just don't know it yet. Amidst the hostility of a world in darkness, there is deep, beautiful, and compelling hope of the light shining into it and overcoming the darkness. It's the best incentive for us to keep going, as we know that there are people out there who will respond in faith to the gospel being preached to them. How utterly heartbreaking would it be to get to the end of our lives and realize we spent more time worrying about harming our chances of a promotion than making sure our colleagues have had a chance to know Christ for themselves. How sad would it be to care too much about what your neighbours in number 32 and number 36 might say about you behind your back for holding true to the gospel, that you don't actually invite them to read the gospel with you? We can be on mission for Christ with real boldness and confidence, knowing that even though the world may hate us, the Lord will bring those he's called to himself because they already belong to him eternally. And how wonderful is that? 
Our second truth we see is that because you belong to Jesus, you can live faithfully on mission in a hostile world. Look over verses 17 to 19 with me, please. And I'll read it with the footnotes that are included. I don't think they're in the order of service, but if you've got an ESV, a proper Bible, um, then they'll be there. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I set myself apart, that they also may be set apart in truth. Jesus wants his disciples to be set apart for the mission of the gospel. That's what sanctification is in this context. Not the gradual growth of Christ-likeness, but the act of being set apart for a particular task. Because, of course, Jesus doesn't grow in holiness like you or I ought to. He doesn't get more holy. He always was, is, and will be perfectly, fully holy in every way. For he can do nothing other than what is holy. He's not making himself holier, but is establishing the basis for his disciples' sanctification. So he sanctifies himself. He sets himself apart for the task on the cross to redeem his people. And he does that in order that those he saves, those who belong to him, will be ready to follow his pattern and set themselves apart for the task he set for them, for the reason he sent them into the world. And that task in view is the mission of being sent into the world by Jesus to spread the gospel to all the ends of the earth, to being people, to bring people into relationship with God so that they know him eternally. And the means for this sanctification for the disciples, and for us today too, is the word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our fuel for the mission is the word itself. It's what will keep us going, keep us focused on the goal we have, that great goal of bringing glory to God by bringing him souls who belong to him through the witness of the church. That's what we are sent into the world for, to glorify God by sharing the gospel with people so that they may glorify him too. And we need that fuel for mission, the word itself, to keep us absorbing more and more of God's word so that we are more like him in our priorities, focused on his goal of gathering more and more people to himself and far less likely to compromise the gospel we know and love. As we close, in, in this section of the prayer and in the whole prayer really, Jesus is preparing the disciples for the mission they're going to take on once he departs. And he wants to reassure them that that mission is going to continue. That just because Jesus has left, it doesn't mean that anything has failed or anything will stop the church from growing or that the disciples aren't protected. Much of what we've read could be interpreted as being quite grim reading. Jesus isn't there in bodily form to guard them and keep them. And the world is going to hate the disciples. But that's not the tone of the passage at all. Jesus is praying for his disciples in a warm, reassuring, and realistically triumphant way. In his prayer, he wants to reassure them that, that God will continue his work and will keep the disciples in his hands, even when the world inevitably turns against them. So it always does. Jesus has no interest whatsoever in taking us away from the fight. 
He's not trying to take us away from all harm, to keep us away from all stress and anxiety. He's not taking us away from the pain of seeing people reject him. And he's not keeping us from the rejection of man. He's not going to do that because, well, he's got a job to do. He has people out there who belong to him who need rescuing. There are many others out there who have been given to Jesus by his Father who belong to him that they haven't heard of and received him yet. So we may live in harm's way, we may face real danger as Christians and not be kept from that. We'll face hatred and rejection from the world because we belong to Jesus, because we're not of this world. But he will keep you. He will keep you from the evil one. The devil will never lay a finger on your eternal status. He will never harm you in any lasting way. For you have been given by God the Father himself to Jesus. And you belong to him forever. I hope that gives you a bit more confidence the next time you're speaking to your friend. And you feel your knees start to shake. Because you're worried they might hate you for what you say. You belong to God the Father, and you always will. And even more than that, this life will bring us joy. Jesus says these things, verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's real joy to be had in standing faithfully in solidarity with our Saviour, shoulder to shoulder against the same hostile world that put him to death, and which he came to save. How tempting will it be when you're in the real world this week to speak about the Euros or the Wimbledon final, rather than preaching the gospel to a world which hates you? I know I'm tempted to do that. I'm tempted to shirk the hard conversations, the things that make me nervous, the ways in which I think my friends or my neighbours are going to hate me for what I say. Well, Jesus was praying for this exactly. He wants you to keep going, to keep holding out the gospel, assured that whatever comes your way, whatever hatred you may face, that he will hold us fast. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you know how afraid our hearts are of faithfully witnessing to you in this world. You know how fearful we are of being disliked, ostracized, and ignored. Please help us to keep on holding out the gospel to the world, expectant that many will turn to you, but realistic that many will hate us in the same way that they hated your son. Help us to remember that heaven is our home and to treasure the glory of you rather than the praise of man. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.